0: Good morning, church. As we enter into God's word on this uh, Independence Day, we, we remind ourselves that not only do we enjoy wonderful freedom as citizens of this great nation, but also that we enjoy an extra and even greater measure of freedom as citizens of heaven. We're going to talk this morning about the nature of true independence. As we celebrate this Independence Day, we we live in a place in which there's oftentimes a misunderstanding of what freedom really is. As we celebrate our freedoms today, we need to understand rightly what we're celebrating. For many in our culture today... They think about freedom as the ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, and with whomever you want. That's the mentality that is often put forward toward freedom today. And yet as we look to the scriptures, we find That there only is real independence and true freedom when there are proper and good and right biblical boundaries in place in our lives. That that's where true freedom is experienced when we are living within the bounds of God's good and pleasing and perfect will. And so the Apostle Paul here in 1 Thessalonians 4 is addressing three main issues in these 12 verses that we're going to be looking at this morning that all relate to how we experience freedom in Christ. The Bible reminds us that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. We don't want to be bound any longer to a yoke of of slavery, particularly that slavery to sin that we're going to be talking about some this morning. But we recognize that we live in a culture that is very much bound in slavery to sin. And in particular, a particular type of sin known as sexual immorality. I'm going to put a few names up on the screen for you. And I want to see if you can think on what these five men might have in common with one another. Five years ago, if I had put these names on the screen, these would have been very well-respected leaders in evangelicalism. Several of these well-known and beloved pastors who made a huge mark in the world in the name of Christ. But over the last few years, each of these has experienced major moral failure in the area of sexual immorality. Each of these has had their name discredited by their inability to follow closely what the Apostle Paul is setting before us today. And now their names represent not honor to Christ, but someone who has dishonored the gospel And fallen into moral failure. We recognize this morning every one of us is susceptible to this same kind of a thing. And yet by God's grace, we can walk in the freedom that First Thessalonians 4 is setting before us. Jeffrey Wyman said holiness is the boundary marker that separates God's people from all other nations. This holiness that we're going to be talking about this morning, this sanctification that we're going to be exploring here in 1 Thessalonians 4 is the pathway to true freedom. And that's what we're celebrating as the people of God today. So what is true freedom? What is true independence? Let me show you in these verses what the Apostle Paul is is laying before us. True freedom is found in three things that we're going to see in these 12 verses this morning. First of all, True freedom is found in sanctified living. True freedom is found in sanctified living. And and sanctified living, I would define this way, as freedom from sin. In Romans chapter 6, the Bible reminds us that, that we were all once slaves to sin. That we were all once captive to sin in a way in which we could do absolutely nothing about that slavery. There was no way in which we could gain emancipation from that form of slavery. There was no bill that could be passed. There was no war that could be won. There was only the perfect and finished work of Jesus Christ that would set us free from slavery to sin. But Him setting free from us from slavery to sin was not finished when we professed faith in Christ. There is this ongoing work that will continue until the day we stand face to face with our Savior known as sanctification. It's, that word is used here in our text this morning. It's also translated holiness. When you think about sanctification, you need to equate that with holiness. Wayne Grudem defined it this way. He said, Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and more like Christ in our actual lives. More and more free from sin and more and more like Christ in our actual lives this is an ongoing process from the moment that we come to know christ as our savior until the day we go to meet christ our savior this ongoing process of sanctification is taking place this us being made holy the fulfillment of what jesus said when he said be holy as i am holy that was both a promise and a command I love the fact that our God is so gracious to us. There is not one command he has given that is not founded completely and firmly upon his promises. And this work that God does in us to make us like himself. This theme of purity, we've already seen it a couple of times in this letter, but let's talk more about it this morning. This is really a very central, one of the central themes of First Thessalonians. So why is purity important? In a day in which it seems like we we live in a culture that is obsessed with sex and all things sexual. that, That even worships this kind of a thing. Why is it important that we as the people of God would walk in purity toward God and toward one another? Especially in this area of sexual immorality. First of all we recognize that purity is paramount because we know God. Look at verse 5 of our text this morning. He says well let's start in verse 3 actually. He says abstain from sexual immorality each one of you should know how to control his own body in holiness there's our keyword and honor and then notice verse 5 not in The passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, here he's using the word Gentiles not just in the sense of non Jews, but here he's using it like in the sense of pagans, of of unbelievers. He's saying, don't be like those who don't know God, who, who engage in sexual immorality, even worship idols of sexual immorality. He said, don't be like them because you know God. Because you know God, holiness, purity, sanctification is a top shelf concern in the Christian life. We cannot afford to negate this. As we look at God's emphasis here on purity and sanctification, you begin to see through these first eight verses the, the repetition of the personhood of God himself in this process of sanctification. We're going to see the Holy Trinity displayed in these verses. If you look there at verse 6, you notice that one reason we want to seek uh, purity and sanctification in knowing God is that first of all that purity is what allows us to avoid the son's condemnation he says that the Lord referencing the second person of the Trinity our savior Jesus Christ the Lord is an avenger against those who engage in sexual immorality and whose lives are defined by impurity And a lack of holiness. There is a heaven to gain. But there is also a wrath to avoid. We've already seen this picture. Of God's wrath against sin. A couple of times in this letter. And we're going to see it a couple of more times. Before we finish. It reminds us that sin is serious. That the wrath of God is coming. Against those who reject. This way of holiness. And choose the worldly way. Of impurity. But again, in particular here, he is talking about the egregious sin of sexual immorality, of any use of God's gift of sex outside of the biblical bounds. We could be quick to define this just by what others may engage in perhaps by the homosexual movement of our day or the transgender issues that we're seeing in our day. But we need to understand God has given the gift of our sexuality and he has given that to be enjoyed and used within the proper bounds, within the bonds of marriage. And so Hebrews 13 encourages us, let the marriage bed be undefiled, let it be kept holy and pure, especially among the people of God. John Phillips said, God has written no trespassing over every man or woman who is not one's own wife or husband. He has also posted this warning, trespassers will be prosecuted. Church is a serious business. As we see on a regular basis, leaders in Christianity falling into sexual temptation and dishonoring the name of Christ. But it's not just our leadership. It's rampant in the church today. And that's no different than the first century. In The city of Thessalonica, sexual immorality was worshipped as a god. And so those who were coming to faith in Jesus Christ and who were seeing what the Bible had to say about sexual immorality were faced with such a radically different dynamic in which they had been brought up. That which they had once worshipped as an idol was now recast in a whole new light. And there was a radical change that was taking place in their lives to where they no longer engaged in the sins of the past. They were brought into a relationship with God that was characterized by holiness. And the same must be true for us if we would avoid the wrath of God. Far too often we use the grace of God as a license for sin in the church today. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. But not only do we see our knowledge of God leading to sanctification in relation to the the Son and His wrath, but we also see that another reason we ought to be concerned about holiness and purity is that purity actually fulfills the Father's calling on our lives. You notice he says, This is the will of God for you, verse 3, your sanctification so i don't know if you've ever struggled with the will of god what what does god want from me or or for me in my life i'm so thankful the bible actually tells us this is not the only passage we could go to several other places and see definitions of the will of god for us but how often do we think about god's will in terms of these kinds of categories That God's will, God's plan, God's purpose for us is very much summed up in this issue of sanctification. It is God's will and plan and purpose that for every believer will be worked out until the day we are perfectly sanctified when we stand before our Savior. Romans 12, we know this verse well. Do not be conformed to this world, But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Church, let's be reminded today, a huge part of sanctification is is God teaching us to love His good and acceptable and perfect will for us. Him teaching us to love what He loves, changing our affections, changes our intentions but also we see the holy spirit gets in on this as well if you look at verse eight we recognize that this purity is paramount because purity comes about by the spirit's consecration that word consecration means a a setting apart A cleansing and a setting apart. And that's the Holy Spirit that God has invested Himself in us in order to work out of us that which would hinder us from Him. And so He is working out of us our sinful inclinations and replacing that old stone-cold heart that was bent toward rebellion against Him. Now He is creating in us a heart of flesh that now beats for His righteousness. This is the work of God. That he is doing in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. He says this is the gift of God. It is God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. God gave himself to us that we might in turn give ourselves to him in holiness. We see purity is paramount because we know God. But we also recognize this purity is paramount because we love one another it's right there in the midst of our text he's laying out all these ways in which god the father and the son and the holy spirit are are enacting this process of sanctification in us he says there in verse four each one of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in passive in the passion of lust like the gentiles who do not know god then look at verse six That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. This is reminding us of the familial nature of the church. That we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so when we engage in sexual immorality, and there's this mantra today in the world that would say, well, it's only sin if you're hurting somebody else. And as long as you're not hurting anybody else, then it's not really sin. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says it's, first of all, an offense against God. But then there's this recognition right here in the text. It's also an offense against your own family. This is why it's egregious in the church that this is a sin against your own flesh and blood, made flesh and blood by the blood of Christ poured out at the cross, that we've been brought together into this family that, by the way, will outlast your earthly family. Your earthly family is for a time this family that's being called brothers and sisters here throughout the New Testament. This family will last for eternity. And so when we sin against one another this is a family issue. This purity is paramount. Again, Romans 6 reminds us of the but now of the Christian life but now That you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, which is eternal life. You see the progress there? That's made just in that one verse. Being set free from sin by what Christ did for us. Then we become not slaves of sin. Now we're slaves of God. That's a much better slavery, by the way. And then what does that produce? The fruit of that leads to this issue we've been talking about, to sanctification and its end. Notice the end of sanctification. If we are not concerned about sanctification, we cannot truly be concerned about eternal life. If you do not desire holiness, you do not desire heaven. I know that sounded harsh, but let me say it again because we need to hear it in the church today. If you do not desire holiness, you do not desire heaven. And this is a check for our souls that we would be concerned about these matters, that we would not be flippant, especially toward sexual immorality. But that purity would be a top shelf concern for us. But he goes on from there. Look at verses 9 and 10. He shows us then that true freedom, it is wrapped up in this idea of sanctified living, but it also demonstrates itself. True freedom is demonstrated in sacrificial loving. A self-sacrificing love is what the church has been called to. So not just a love that would abstain from sexual immorality, but a love that would run toward the good of my brothers and sisters in Christ, that would love the opportunity to serve one another in honor of God and in love for each other. And this sacrificial loving, just as the sanctified life frees us from sin... This sacrificial love frees us from the slavery to self. That's part of our sin nature is that we are self-obsessed. And again, our culture would say, well, you got to learn to love yourself before you can love others. I know we've all heard that. you got to learn to love yourself before you can learn to love others. I'm going to tell you that is one of the most bogus statements on the face of the planet. The problem is we love ourselves too much. We don't need to learn to love ourselves anymore. That's what has caused the issue in the first place. What we need to do is learn to love God and love others. Now some would be quick to say, well doesn't the Bible say love others as you love yourself? Yes. But that word as is very important. That word as is not saying, oh, you need to learn your, love to love yourself so you can learn to love others. No, it's saying you already love yourself. What needs to happen is that affection, that love, that devotion needs to be redirected away from yourself and toward God and others. It's a very important distinction that we must make. James Grant said, though, in spite of the emphasis on love in the scriptures, and it is found throughout our Bibles, the Christian church is not known for love today. We're known for divisions, our fights, our disagreements, our anger, our specific doctrines, but not for our love. And we must repent of this. We must get back to basic Christianity to first things. And this is so crucial As we think about walking in the freedom of the Christian life, we must recognize that a a crucial element of that is walking in biblical love. Now, we do not do that at the expense of the truth. Why? Because first Corinthians 13 reminds us that love rejoices with the truth. So anytime that you see a supposed love being displayed that waters down the truth of God's Word that would make God's truth secondary or or even unimportant... In light of this supposed love, you're not seeing biblical love because biblical love always rejoices with the truth. It's always, we're always seeking to speak the truth in love. These two, truth and love, are not in competition with one another. They actually help balance one another in a very biblical way. The command here to love one another. Again, setting us free from our slavery to self. And in verse 9 there, look at the text. In verse 9 he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Apparently they had, had sent Paul a question about how they were to love one another. We don't know the exact question. But Paul says, I don't even need to write to you about this. Why? For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Isn't that beautiful that What he's saying there is that love's inventor has become our instructor. Who knows better how to love than God himself, who is the very essence creator and sustainer of all that is truly love. And he's saying, God has become your teacher. He is already instructing you in this way. So Paul's saying, I've got nothing to add. I have no further instructions in this area, simply that you would continue doing what you're already doing. He says, only that you would do this more and more. Making progress in their love for one another. A reminder That our love is to be incessant and increasing. That we never arrive at a place where we can check off the love box and say, well, I've done that. Now I can go on to something else. No, this is a continual command for every believer that we continue to make progress just as we would desire to make progress in sanctification so we would desire to make progress in this area of loving one another of serving others in jesus name uh, of listening well to the needs of the brothers and sisters around us of learning to be that spiritual family that's about more than just spending an hour together on sunday morning but throughout the week that we are praying for one another That we are engaged in relationships with one another. This is not love at a distance. There can be no social distancing in this kind of love. It's up close and personal. Sometimes it's very hard, it's of the utmost necessity because Jesus himself said, A new commandment I give you. This is for you, church. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, that's the model, you also are to love one another. That's the second time. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Three times in two verses he's exalting this goal of loving one another in light of the gospel and God's love for us displayed at the cross. You say, well, what does it look like to love one another in the body of Christ? It looks like the cross. It's not Valentine's Day cards. It looks like the cross. This love is difficult. It's costly, but it's worth it. So we follow his command to love one another. And then the third point today gives us a practical example of how that love is displayed. So true freedom is found in in sanctified living. True freedom is found in, in sacrificial loving. But also we see in verses 11 and 12 that true freedom, Christian freedom, independence in Christ is found in simple laboring. Simple laboring, the kind of working that would set us free from slavery to others. Look at what he says there. He says, and to aspire, to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. What's the purpose? So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is true independence, what he's describing here. A sanctified life, a self-sacrificing love, and then simple laboring. Work as unto the Lord. We remind ourselves, as the Bible would in various places, that the borrower is the slave of the lender. We live in a credit-obsessed culture. Now, I wouldn't go as far as some and say that there's never a time in which credit should be used. I think there's some biblical wisdom that ought to be appropriated in that area. But let's just say we're way off the deep end in terms of the amount of debt that we typically have in the American households today. This was not just a uh, uh, this is not just a 21st century problem though even in the 1st century there was a particular kind of debt that that was that people were living in in the 1st century that was making them indebted to others in a way that was that Paul is is trying to lead them out of in these verses there was a a system in the Roman Empire uh, that that had to do it was very much like our modern welfare system today it basically kind of worked like this if you were exceptionally wealthy, if you were kind of in the, in the top tier of the economy in terms of your wealth, then you could become what was known as a patron, which is a kind of an interesting word for Independence Day. We all want to be patriots, but everybody would aspire in the Roman culture to be a patron, and what a, being a patron meant was that you had enough resources that you could then take on what were known as clients. Political correctness is nothing. New. These words sound really nice, don't they? You as a patron could take on clients in the first century, which meant that... The way it worked was if you had enough wealth, you could then begin to provide for the essential needs of some who were not as wealthy as you. Some of the lower class citizens, you could begin to provide them with food and shelter and clothing. And it sounds really wonderful. We would say, well, isn't that what the church ought to be about, that we ought to be providing for one another? But the catch was this. If you became the client of one of these patrons and your livelihood became dependent upon their provision, then when it came time for an election, you knew which way you had to vote. When it came time for someone to be nominated for public office, you might be called upon to make that nomination. They were essentially buying votes, buying honor, buying reputation. They were essentially, it was essentially a political move. This was not about really serving those of a lower socioeconomic state. It really had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with these patrons elevating themselves up the social hierarchy. Showing that they were such good and loving and generous people. Even though oftentimes what they were providing was far substandard even in that day. The Bible just reminds us the borrower is the slave of the lender. There's a slavery to be avoided here. It comes from Proverbs 22. We all know Proverbs 22, 6. We've heard this many times. It's often used out of context. Train up a child in the way he should go, even when he's old, he will not depart from it. But Proverbs 22, 7 is probably even more important for our purposes today. The rich rules over the poor. That's what was happening in first century Rome. And I will say to you, church, I'm afraid that's exactly what's happening today in our country. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Whenever we become indebted to others in this kind of a way, we are entering into a slavery. Now I'm going to touch on a a particularly tender topic for just a moment, but just to say I know that we have all just been astounded by these random checks that are showing up in our bank accounts this last year. But let me just say very clearly, that money is coming from somewhere and there will be a payday someday. And we need to be aware of that. As we are looking at a change in the mentality of our culture, going back very much, I would say, to a patron-client kind of situation, that those in power are buying votes. I know I'm getting a little more political than some of you are comfortable with. I'll get off this soapbox in just a second. But I want us to be very, very aware that as we engage in the kind of culture that is very much like what Paul is condemning here and saying, don't enter into that kind of dependence. What's the solution? Get a job, man. <laughs> That's it. It's so simple. And right now, go drive around Hardinsburg. If you can't find a job, you're not looking. Every place in Hardensburg now hiring, wherever you want to work. And yet we have a government that is paying people to stay home. And now, and now the government is wanting to pay people to get back to work. What are we doing? And yet the Bible is so clear, isn't it? Look how simple this is. It's not complicated. Look how simple this is. Aspire to live quietly. You don't need to make a name for yourself. You don't need your 15 minutes of fame. Your aspiration, your desire to live a quiet and peaceful life. Why? Just to stay out of trouble? No, that's not it. It's a witness to a world that does anything but that. Aspire to live quietly. To mind your own affairs. I ought to put this over the door of my children. Aspire to mind your own affairs. If you don't know what that means, mind your own business. Parents, how many times do we have to say that in sibling rivalries? Just mind your own business. And work with your own hands. You know, the Greeks despised physical labor. They believed that if you had to work with your hands, that you were less than. They considered only those who did the intellectual work of philosophy and, and the like, that those were the really important people. And then you had all these little clients down here that might, other, apart from our help, have to actually work with their hands. That was so degrading to them. And yet Paul elevates that and says this is actually one of the goals of the Christian life. Make your own living. Don't live in dependence upon a government or a patron. Earn your own living to the glory of God. He's saying here, honest work in the Lord is honorable work. Whatever you're doing, if you're making tacos at Taco Bell, do it to the glory of God. If you are digging ditches for new houses to be built, do it to the glory of God. If you are raising crops that we might eat, do it to the glory of God. Honest work is honorable work. We need to be reminded of that in the day when it seems like so many are seeking to do anything they can to get out of work. When Paul is saying, no, get to work to the glory of God, I'll leave you with Colossians chapter three encourages whatever you do. If you're making tacos, you're digging ditches, you're raising crops, you're teaching kids whatever you do, work heartily. give your best effort. as for the Lord and not for men by the way church that changes the way we work. that will radically change the way you do what you do. It's no longer just about the paycheck that you get. It's recognizing this is an act of worship that I work as unto the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. By the way, that's better than any paycheck, no matter how large. That is, that is your service to Christ. And so I encourage you this morning as we come to the close of this message consider where are you personally in terms of these three areas related to our freedom in Christ, our independence as followers of Jesus Christ? Where are you in relation to sanctification these days? Is your heart bent toward this in such a way that purity matters to you? That walking in holiness before God as an act of worship is important to you? Where are you in relation to this biblical love? Again, it's hard. It can be very painful and costly, but it will be worth it in every way. When Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, a huge portion of that cross was learning to love others in a biblical and self-sacrificing way. And then just so practically, where are you in relation to this command to work as unto the lord now i know in this room we have some who are retired but again it's whatever you do whatever you do in your retirement work heartily as unto the lord in your disability work heartily as unto the lord Stop comparing yourself with others and what they can do and what they can earn and and their uh, contribution to society and recognize whatever God has given you to do, do that as unto the Lord and you will be blessed with an internal inheritance far beyond any paycheck. Let's consider ourselves as we bow before the Lord this morning. Father, we pray that you would enable us to examine ourselves. Lord, we thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ. We thank you for the freedom that we have in this country. We know that that blood was spilled so that we could enjoy these freedoms. And most importantly, the blood of our Savior was spilled so that we could walk in holiness before you. The blood of our Savior was spilled so that we could learn to love like you love. The blood of our Savior was spilled so that we could work as unto the Lord. Not seeking in some way to earn your favor, but recognizing that we have your favor already through the finished work of Christ. And so we can simply work with our hands as an act of worship unto you. Lord, what grace! What unmerited favor you have shown us. Father, help us on this Independence Day to examine our own independence. Lord, show us where there is progress needed in our purity. Show us where there is farther to go in our love. And show us what it will look like for us in the days we have remaining on this earth to work as unto the Lord, not for man. Not to be people-pleasers, but God-pleasers. And all to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.